0: Hello, and welcome to the Pediatric Anesthesia Journal's Featured Article of the Month podcast for September 2021. These monthly podcasts are published on the journal's website, and you can also subscribe to them via iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Podbean. My name is Dr. Devna Chatterjee, and I'm one of the journal's education editors. This month's featured article is entitled, Error Traps in Pediatric Regional Anesthesia, it is my distinct pleasure to welcome the corresponding author of this article, Dr. Melissa Masarakia, who is currently an assistant professor of anesthesiology at Jones Hospital Colorado and the University of Colorado, and the senior author of this article, Dr. David Paulner, who is a professor of anesthesiology at Seattle Children's Hospital and the University of Washington. Welcome to this podcast, and thank you so much for joining me.
1: Hi, thank, thank you, you for including us. us.
0: So let's get started. This is the second article in the error trap series, where we highlight error traps, which are circumstances or actions that can result in complications. Your article focuses on avoiding common error traps while performing regional anesthesia in children. So let's start with the first error trap, failure to confirm the intended block site resulting in a wrong site block or surgery. Can you please explain further?
1: Yeah, you're probably thinking, how could someone perform a nerve block on the wrong side or the wrong site? You just confirm the correct side or site beforehand. Um, while it seems pretty simplistic, it still happens, and it can actually increase the risk for surgery on the wrong side or at the wrong site. Uh, blocks are typically unilateral, and sometimes they require us to change the patient's position to perform them more ergonomically. So patients may be prone or turn laterally. Um, I think that can easily confuse the operator performing the block. Um, There are other upstream and downstream factors that can impact this too. But if we aren't cognizant of the potential for wrong side or wrong site nerve blocks, and if we don't have some standardized way to capture that human error, any physician really can make the mistake of performing a block on the wrong side or the wrong site. So
0: how can we avoid this sentinel event from happening?
1: Unfortunately, there really isn't any good data to provide guidance on how to avoid it. ASRA put out a checklist in 2014 that significantly lowered the incidence of this happening, but it still didn't address a way to confirm the correct block site. Uh, More recently, Dr. Polliner and some of his colleagues put out a checklist specifically targeting pediatric regional anesthesia, and that incorporated a way to do this. But overall, just being aware that this happens and that it is preventable can reduce the potential for it to happen. Uh, My suggestion would be to incorporate a standard timeout or checklist that reconfirms block placement right before the performing uh, of the procedure.
0: That makes sense. The second error trap focuses on recognizing ultrasound artifacts such as acoustic shadows, air pockets, dropouts, etc. cetera. Can you provide us some practical tips on how to recognize and avoid them?
2: Sure. There are really two pitfalls from ultrasound artifacts that can trip up the anesthesiologist. The first is that artifacts can degrade the image so that the target for your block is obscure or unrecognizable. You can't find your target. And this can happen often when the gain on the ultrasound machine is set either too low, which causes the structures of interest not to be seen at all, or to be so subtle that they're not recognized, or too high, which results in lost detail and difficulty in differentiating between structures. The second is that the artifacts can give the unwary anesthesiologist the impression of a structure that isn't really there. And this is more likely to occur with overgain. It's really important for the regional anesthesiologist to understand and to be familiar with how to manipulate the settings on their ultrasound machine so as to achieve the best image. Uh, Acoustic shadowing describes a phenomenon where air, which does not conduct ultrasound waves well, causes dropout of the ultrasound signal deep to the air pocket. This can occur outside the patient when you don't have a good layer of coupling gel between the skin and the probe, but it can also happen inside the patient if air bubbles aren't fully purged from the needle tubing and local anesthetic and accidentally injected.
0: Thank you. Occasionally, anatomical structures can be mistaken for the target now. So how are blood vessels, attendants tendons, differentiated from nerves and ultrasonography?
2: The first thing that's critical, and, and this really applies to any time you're using ultrasound, is to have an image in your mind of what to expect when you scan the patient. We know that one of the tremendous benefits of using ultrasound is that it not only enables us to see the anatomic structures, but to recognize the normal anatomic variation that occurs from patient to patient. Still, a knowledge of the expected anatomic relationship of nerves, vessels, and tendons is critical. I think that it's much less common to have difficulty differentiating nerves from arteries and veins because the latter are either pulsatile, if arterial, or compressible, if venous, and the lumens of those structures are relatively anechoic. Color Doppler flow can confirm if they're blood vessels if there's confusion tendons and nerves are both echogenic but tendons of course are attached to muscles so tracing the structure back by moving the probe along the longitudinal axis of the structure will demonstrate that the tendon eventually blends into a muscle whereas a nerve follows its anatomic path perhaps branching more distally into more distal nerves or proximally arising from a larger trunk if one is really confused, you can use nerve stimulation, which is not a completely obsolete technique, but can uh, confirm that a structure is nerve by observing the response to electrical stimulation.
0: So, moving on to the next error trap, how do you approach regional blocks in children with pre existing neurological conditions such as spina bifida and mucopolysychrodosis? Can you elaborate on the double crush phenomenon?
1: Well, the double-crush phenomenon is this idea that patients with pre-existing neurologic diseases, whatever that might be, may be more susceptible to neurologic injury when they get exposed to some secondary insult. There's this synergism that occurs that causes additive damage that we don't usually see in children without neurologic disease. So what this means is that pre-existing neurologic conditions provide this environment where even minor trauma can actually create new deficits or worsen pre-existing deficits. Um, When we apply this to regional anesthesia in this setting, we have already compromised nerves that are potentially exposed to two types of injury. We've got the chemical injury from local anesthetics that we use, and then potentially even mechanical injury just from needle manipulation. And this is all hypothetical, though, um, because many of these neurologic diseases are rare. There isn't much data commenting on safety. Um, Much of it is anecdotal. It's based off of case series or case reports, and we extrapolate it from adult literature. This is where it becomes a bit tricky most neurologic disorders don't present with features that are absolute contraindications to regional anesthesia you know some situations are a definite no for example neuraxial blocks in patients with open neural tube defects tethered cord uh, complex spina bifida but there are other gray area scenarios that need more individualized evaluation i think uh, to truly assess the risks and benefits of using regional anesthesia and i think my rule of thumb is that you know when there's excessive risk with regional blocks Systemic analgesics can always be used instead.
0: Finally, what are your recommendations for regional blocks in children with challenging anatomy, such as arthrogryposis or osteogenesis imperfecta?
2: These patients can be incredibly difficult. Um, Depending upon the degree of deformity, even the most skilled ultrasonographer can be foiled by some of them. First, I think one should choose the most appropriate probe. That's really important because if you can't get good application of the probe surface to the patient's surface anatomy, you can't generate a usable image. Second, the ultrasonic appearance of the contractured and scarred connective tissues, muscles, and tendons can make the identification of neural structures or tissue planes very difficult, and it may necessitate either an alternative block that is applied in a slightly different anatomic region but still provides the same nerve coverage, or it may even require the abandonment of a regional technique altogether. Uh, While I strongly believe that regional blockade offers tremendous benefits to these patients, sometimes anatomic problems make a block simply impossible to perform.
0: That totally makes sense. Thank you for those practical tips. Before we wrap up, any concluding remarks?
2: Uh, I think that ultrasound has given us a really powerful tool to improve the use of regional blockade in children. And understanding and awareness of these error traps will help even experienced clinicians improve their practice and result in a higher percentage of successful blockade and more comfortable patients in the post-operative period.
0: David and Melissa, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a lovely discussion. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat and we look forward to more contributions from you and your team.
2: Thank you. Thank you. And we appreciate the invitation.
0: So this wraps up our featured article of the month podcast for September, 2021. This article will be available for free on the journal's website soon. Follow us on Twitter on at PD Anesthesia. Please join us for next month featured article of the month. Until then, cheers.